Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I hope you're doing well, and I hope you're getting excited because if you live in the Northern Hemisphere, spring is just around the corner, and even if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, fall is an exciting time as well. But all of these changes in the seasons gets me thinking about phenology, and that is exactly what we're talking about today. Phenology can be defined as the study of cyclic and seasonal nature of phenomenon, especially in relation to climate and plant and animal life. And joining us to talk about this is Samantha Brewer from the National Phenology Network. And what she's about to talk to you about today is not only the importance of phenology and collecting phenology data, specifically on plants as it relates to this podcast, but it can apply to any walk of life that you are able to observe and how you can get involved in this process. Before we get to that topic, I do want to remind you that this podcast does not happen without the support of my patrons over at patreon.com slash plants. My patrons make this podcast possible. I literally could not be doing it without their support each and every month. It doesn't take much and a little bit goes an extremely long way. So thank you to all of my patrons. And if you're enjoying this podcast, consider becoming one today. But in the meantime, let's get on with the show. I don't want to steal any more of Samantha's time. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Samantha Brewer. I hope you enjoy. All right, Samantha Brewer, welcome to the podcast. I am really excited to pick your brain today, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hi, my name is Samantha Brewer, and I am the Volunteer Engagement Coordinator for the USA National Phenology Network. So I help um, volunteers all across the country collect data on the seasonal changes of plants and animals in their area. Excellent. Music to my ears, and I'm really excited for my audience to find different ways they can get involved in this project. But let's start with how you got here. I mean, what is your background? What got you interested in phenology? And why is it important for you to be working at a place like this? Yeah, so I have a master's degree in biology from Northern Arizona University. I've always been interested in actually animals, so it's fun for me to be on a plant podcast. Welcome. Um, and I've been kind of an educator <laughs> in varying capacities over the past 10 years. Um, recently, I was an educator at Reed Park Zoo, and we needed a way to monitor the plants and pollinators that were visiting our pollinator garden. Um, especially because we're planting milkweeds um, mm. to provide breeding habitat for monarch butterflies. Um, and that's where I first heard of the National Phenology Network. We used their citizen science program called Nature's Notebook uh, to collect data on what the milkweed were doing um, as far as like different seasons and when they're flowering and when they're fruiting, and also the phenology of the monarchs. So were they breeding? Were the caterpillars growing? Were they pupating? Um, at the pollinator garden. And so it got me really into actually what plants meant and are really the connections that people can make with plants. Cause I learned so much about plants <laughs> just by going out a couple times a week and looking at them very, very carefully and recording how they were changing through the year. And so when the opportunity came to apply for the network to be able to help other people be able to learn about how cool plants are and be able to develop their relationships with plants, I was really excited about the opportunity and I'm really glad that I get to do that now. 
Awesome. That's really cool. And welcome to the green side. You know, as they say, it's uh, it's addicting. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. But, <laughs> you know, regardless, I mean, as someone with a biological background, it all matters, right? And we just kind of pick which camp we want to rest in for a period of time. But, you know, you start thinking about things like phenology and you realize how interconnected and how important it really all is because you got the plants emerging, you got the pollinators, any amount of seed dispersal you want to add in there. You got to figure out like the timing on these events. And so, you know, phenology is an interesting thing because you say it in a group of people. Most people probably don't know that word, but on some level they get what it means. But but let's let's dish it out easy enough. What is phenology and why why does it factor into your life so heavily? That is an excellent point that you made. That is what I love to tell people is phonology is one of those words that no one knows what it means, but most people actually do know the concept. So phonology is the study of the seasonal changes of plants and animals in relation to their environment. So we have our seasons that we usually talk about with spring, summer, fall, and winter. As the season cha- seasons change, the plants and animals around us change with the seasons. And the the stages that they go through um, are generally repeated year after year after year, right? So in the spring, you might have um, flowers appearing, for example, on redbud trees, followed by their leaves, and then their leaves will change color in the autumn. Um, and then the plants will go dormant in the wintertime. Um, and we can usually expect like, oh, around this time of year, we'll start seeing some of our favorite flowers emerging, or we are expecting when our favorite bird is beginning to appear um, after their migrations. So yeah, we, most of us are familiar with the concept. The word itself is new to a lot of people. Right, right. And you know, you're hinting at something really important there is this power of observation, whether you're hearing something new, smelling something for the first time that year, or you know, for most of us, it's going out and, oh, look, they're blooming. Or, oh, look, the, the, the this warbler is back. That's really exciting. And, you know, that in and of itself is really exciting because it, it, it connects us back to nature. It connects us to, like, the ebb and flow of the seasons and time. I mean, seasons are a relative term depending on where you come from. But things change over time. But more than ever, it's becoming very important to understand phenology and how it changes over time and what things can alter phenology of an organism, regardless of which organism it is you're paying attention to. And so how has, you know, you're relatively recent in your job, but phenology is something you've probably been thinking about on some form for a long time. How has that kind of changed since you've gotten involved in the world of biology and and now, you know, thinking of phenology professionally? The world is a vastly changing place, you know, and everyone's noticing it's happening a little bit quicker, whether they want to admit to what the causes or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I continuously find that the more I learn, the less I know. And that definitely <laughs> oh is the case. With Preach. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so it is right. So it, especially when you think about living things, right? So sometimes like I studied birds, um, for my, while I was in college and, um, then it's like, okay, well, it's, yeah, it's not just the birds, right? You have to think about where the birds are living and the ecosystem that they're living in and what foods are the birds eating, right? So you have kind of these tiers where you think about creatures at like the organismal level, and then you can think about them with their environments in like an ecological level. And then with phenology, you add this kind of really cool element to it when you're thinking about these living things and their environment. And that's 
and that's time and their reproduction and their behaviors and how these change as um, as the climate around them changes as changes as well. Um, and yeah, you're right, right? It's not always seasons can depend on where you live. It's very, very different if you're closer to the equator versus like if you're up in the tundra. Um, and so the phenology for these different organisms is definitely based on where they're found and what climate that they're used to. And that is important, especially when you're considering climate change, right? And mm. so you can have shifts in phenology. So for example, um, some uh, plant species, it depends on the plant, right? But some of them will know when to have timing of um, their phenophases or you know how, how their phenology is expressed. Um, the timing can be based on length of day, which isn't really going to change unless the earth slows down or speeds up, but we've got bigger <laughs> problems with that if that's yeah. going on, right? So length yeah. of day, you know, that can be predictable and that's really not going to shift. But other plants um, or will also depend on the temperature around them for how they um, conduct their life cycles. So some plants will need a period, a, a certain period of coldness in order mm -hmm. to be able to germinate. Um, and other plants will kind of gauge how warm it is around them when figuring out, you know, I, I keep saying like they have brains, right? But Quite plants right. are living things just yeah. like we are. And they're just, they're reacting to their surroundings, right? So other plants will use uh, how many, how long it's warm enough for them to determine that it's safe to be able to put out blooms. And so if we have changes in our climate where spring is appearing early or spring conditions really where it's, where it's that length of warmness that plants will bloom, if that happens too early, um, then you'll see kind of phenological shifts where plants are starting to bloom earlier than they used to. And that can have big long-term implications, um, not only with the plants themselves, but the other living things that they're interacting with. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can envision a plant blooming either too early or too late for their obligate pollinator or, you know, switch it around to the animal side. If a plant that a hummingbird relies on is blooming earlier than they're arriving, then they suddenly get there and they're like, wait, where's my food? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and there was this research that was done recently um, on actually a bird. And sorry, I'm going to keep going back to my animal friends. Okay. But um, this bird that's called a great tit that's found in kind of Europe and Asia. And what they found with the great tits is that when they time their breeding, they'll actually time their breeding. So they'll gauge the temperature and they'll lay their eggs and they'll time the, when they lay their eggs so that when the eggs hatch and you've got a whole nest full of hungry nestlings, hmm. that's the time when there's peak of certain species of caterpillars that they eat. And then those caterpillars also have their way of timing, like when eggs are going to be laid and when those eggs are going to be hatched and they're closely tied to um, leafing out of oaks. And what they found in that research is that in the Netherlands specifically, there was a shift or there is a shift where the caterpillars are appearing earlier and the the birds are also um, starting their breeding earlier. But the rate of how quickly the, the caterpillars are hatching, they're they're coming much earlier than the birds are. And so there's a mismatch where there's not enough caterpillars for the Ooh. birds eggs. And it's not everywhere that there's great tits that that's happening, but um, in the Netherlands specifically, they saw those patterns. Right. And this is but one example, right? And and the more you yes. dive into the ecological literature, the more you start to see these asynchronies or mismatches. And sometimes it benefits certain organisms and other times it's hurting them. But it's all couched in this idea that things are changing and, and they're changing often at rates that aren't equal among 
groups that rely on each other. But if there's any rule in ecology and biology in general is that life is very complicated and you can envision a scenario where you're starting to track even three organisms, let alone the multitudes that are out there interacting in ways we don't even fully understand. And and this becomes very intimidating really quickly. And that's where places like the National Phenology Network come into play and why they excite me so much is because no group of scientists has eyes everywhere, nor can they be everywhere all the time, even in their little research area. But what you all seem to do is leverage the power of citizen science, the power of observation that really anyone can be involved with. So talk to me a little bit more about like the National Phenology Network and more specifically Nature's Notebook. Yeah, so the USA National Phenology Network, we were established in 2007 uh, with the intent to collect, store, and share phenology data and information. So basically, we wanted a way that people could collect phenology observations or observations on those seasonal changes, but also make that information accessible to everybody. So in 2009, we started a program called Nature's Notebook, and Nature's Notebook is the platform where people can record phenology data. And how it works is basically you or I or anyone could choose to go outside and maybe there's a tree outside um, my, you know, outside my front door. Or even like if I'm in a space where I don't have a lot of greenness, even if you're going into work and you you have like this neat little plant that you see on your way there, you can um, you can create basically your own study site. You add whatever plant you want to observe. And then you're answering yes or no questions about what you observe on that plant. So you go out and we'll use pine pine leaf milkweed or pine needle milkweed because that's the one that I have out on my front porch. Sweet. But when I go out in the morning, I just answer questions about my milkweed. Do I see leaves on my plant? Do I see flowers? Do I see fruits? Do I see ripe fruits? And you just record yes or no. And what's really cool about that is you get this kind of long-term data on these individual plants. So I've got no flowers, I've got no flowers, I've got no flowers. And this week I went out and now I see flowers on my plant. And that no data or that negative data is really important because it shows that someone's out there observing the plant, flowers weren't there. And now we know that within a week, because ah. I was like, maybe they're between the weeks. Now we know that this is when this plant started flowering. And when people are collecting that data all over the United States, we get this really cool picture about when flowering and leaf out and fruiting begins on all these different plants and ends, right? Because right. then I'll say flowers, flowers, flowers. Now I say no flowers, but now I've got fruits, hopefully, if i got some pollination going on. <laughs> right. That's really cool to hear. And it's encouraging to hear the breadth of data y'all are accepting because even I default, you go, oh, phenology. What, what's going on with the blooms? You know what I mean? It's very biased towards flowers. Or if you're an animal person, like probably some major event, like, oh, I hear calls, but birds are calling and, and, and around when they're not calling is uh, equally as much. But even this idea of nothing's happening is also important to know because phenology is more than just the bloom period. It's the leaf out. It's making fruits. It's when did those fruits disperse? It's all of the aspects of an organism's life. And if you really want to dive into an organism, boy, just observe it. And 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 this is a great sort of impetus to also give back for the time spent observing, even though just the time spent observing is good enough by itself. That's true. A lot of people say like, oh, it's wintertime and that's our slow period, right? Because you have a lot of plants dormant and you just kind of go out and check and you're like, nope, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing going on. But then it gets do it does get very exciting. When you know, you know, you know that's um, you're expecting for some of those buds to appear and ceasing 
the first breaking buds or first breaking flower buds of the season. Right, right. But this long-term idea too, like year after year after year is also important because as many of us have seen even throughout this winter across the continental United States at least, but every year is a great example of this, is things change. And one year doesn't set the standard, right? You have to have those multiple observations. Was this anomalous or was this something that you know, is actually considered a trend. And I'm sure that as time goes by, you start to pull those out, the more and more data points that come in for different organisms in different areas. That is exactly right. Um, and so I wa- that's a really good opportunity for me to mention as well, because we do, you can individually, like just watch any tree in your backyard. Um, but we also have um, what are known as local phenology programs. And so with a local phenology program, you can have a school or an organization, oh. usually with someone who's kind of the leader mm-hmm. who can manage volunteers and you can bring in multiple people to be watching the same plant because it can be really tricky for me to be like, I'm going to be recording my data on my milkweed, you know, in perpetuity. Um, But when we have some of these programs and organizations and schools um, where even if the volunteers change and the students change, you're still collecting data on the same plants. And we've had several local phenology programs who've been collecting programs that have been collecting data on their same plants for years. That's really nice. So I can envision a like a, a teacher being like, hey, this is part of the unit I have on this. And every year a, a new crop of students is coming through. Let's use the same plant over and over. And so it's like really benefiting a lot more than just the data set itself. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. It's especially fun um, with the schools because, yeah, um, you'll have the students change. But we also have this really cool visualization tools. So these local phenology programs can just like select the the data that they're collecting with their program. And so you can have this visualization and you can show the students, all right, this is the patterns that you saw this year. Let's look at your other years. And we can even compare data to the school in another state or another part of our state. And you can compare what you're seeing with what others are seeing across the country. Oh, that's great. Because sometimes contributing to things where you're like, I don't know where any of this data is going, who's using it. It's probably padding one person's publication you know, record. But yeah, I mean, seeing the, the fruits of many people's labor and, and doing it in a way that can streamline itself into like what the focus is in that moment is so much more impactful. That's exactly right. It can be really hard if you're out there collecting data on this plant for, you know, however many years. And you're like, is anyone even going to use this data? Is what I'm doing even going to matter as far as like scientific collection? What's really cool about this program is that you can adjust the program to fit the needs of your questions being asked. So if you're saying like, I just want to know if milkweeds are using my or if monarchs are using my milkweeds for the reproduction. Um, But you can also have these organizations where they care about, you know, what are their stakeholders looking for? What questions do they need answers to to help their organization like succeed and thrive? Um, How can they educate their visitors and the public about what's going on? And so they can answer questions that are relevant to them, not necessarily you're just putting data in the universe and you're hoping that someone uses is it. Now, with that being said, we do have specific campaigns where researchers are looking for specific questions on specific species. So, for example, we have the Red Bud Phenology Project. We have researchers who are looking um, at what's going on with the phenology of red buds. We have one campaign called Quercus Quest, where we're looking at the phenology of different oak species, um, because that's really important for their relationship with other oaks and with insects 
insects and with fungi. Um, and so some of the data you collect, yes, specific researchers are looking for, but some of it can be just to answer your own questions or the questions for the organization or school that you represent. Right. That's awesome. And so basically it's, it's benefiting anyone that really wants to use it within the realms of, you know, what's available. Oh yeah, absolutely. You could actually go to our website right now and you can download every single piece of data that's ever been collected with nature's <laughs> notebook. I've accidentally done it. I don't recommend it. It is like, Oh, by the way, this will take a few hours. Ah, oops. We do have filters where researchers can like filter through and look for the data that they're looking for. And it is freely available to anyone who's, um, you know, looking, who has a question that needs to be answered that can be answered with phenology. That's excellent. I mean, science being done the way science should be done, free and open and, and useful to anyone that needs it. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's one thing that is important to us as well is getting those diverse perspectives for the people who collect the data, because even the way that you what it means to you, like the personal meaning to you for collecting these data or um, a cultural meaning in your in your community um, can be really, really important. And so I learn all the time about why different organizations are collecting phonology data, what questions they want to answer. Um, their motivations for doing so. And it's just so, so diverse and it's wonderful to be able to experience like you have these little, you know, these little team green plants mm -hmm. and people who are, are slowing down and looking at them carefully, often for the first time. And just that wow factor of, I had no idea that this is how fruits formed or that even that these plants had fruits because most people just think about what's at the grocery store. But <laughs> Yeah. are much more <laughs> interesting than the ones that we eat. That's really neat too. And it's almost like an unintended consequence and, and consequence being a non-value <laughs> term in this case uh, is, is really the social experiment too, is why do people care, right? And what do they care about? And that to me is also really interesting because that gives us insights into like the collective temperature of our culture. Absolutely. And that is a question that I am interested in. Um, there's a lot of social science that goes into that, which I am, we might, you know, we would be very interested in collaborating with people with. Um, right now, I just have anecdotes, really, of sure. what we learned from the observers. But it is something that we're interested in is, you know, what is it that motivates you? And especially because we we're looking at long term data collection, and a lot of our volunteers have been collecting data for a long time. Um, and they all do it for their own personal reasons. Different organizations do it for their own organizational reasons, but um, we're grateful that we have that available to them and that they, that they do get some sort of fulfillment from being able to make these observations and, and contribute these data. That is excellent. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about the bigger context of what's going on and, and how to get people more connected to nature, because you know, for better, for worse, people are spending more time indoors. They're a little less observant, a lot less observant in many cases of what's going on outside because, you know, our world is buffered against nature. We don't have to rely on it as directly as we once did. Our ancestors once did. But I can't think of a better way to connect to a plant than to spend time observing it. And a lot of people that are not plant people will say, well, plants are boring. They don't do anything. And you realize how untrue that is the more time you spend around them. They're very dynamic organisms. It's just on timescales that aren't as readily apparent to casual observation, but f not forcing, but really focusing in 
on a single individual or maybe a stand of trees in your neighborhood will reveal things about nature to you that you always unexpected. I can't even predict what the things that get revealed. And so that must be a big component of what you do as coordinating volunteers and, and hearing these stories day in and day out. Oh, absolutely. Um, especially when you're like training volunteers, right? So oftentimes you might have a volunteer come to your organization because they believe in your organization and they're like, oh, this phenology thing is cool. I'd love to learn about it. And when you're training them on, yeah, it's funny because it's one thing, yeah, when you go outside and you see your tree that you're familiar with, but, but it is another thing when you stop for 10 minutes and really look at what you're noticing on that tree. And even though it is those kind of like, yes, I see leaves or yes, I see flowers, but no, I don't see fruits. Um, when you're going out regularly, you really do kind of develop a relationship with your plant. And that is what I would like encourage if you have any listeners who are like, you know, I've never really thought about it that way or I've never really looked at my plants that way. When you go out and just pick like one plant, you're like, all right, I've got this one plant that I kind of take for granted. I walk by it every <laughs> single day. And when you stop and look at when you actually even once a week for like 10 minutes, just stop and look at it and pay attention to what it's doing and how it's changing. You really do get to know it. And then your first year, it's like kind of awkward because you're like, I don't know, is that colored leaves or is that I did that a little bit. I was like, is that even really a fruit yet? And then I came back next week. OK, it's growing. Yeah, that it was the fruit. Um, and so you have the, your very awkward, like initial stage of observations. But then as you continue through the years, like you really get to know it. And we do get emails sometimes where people are like, by the way, like um, my my saguaros are not producing as much or as many blooms this year as, as they have with previous years. Do you guys know why exactly? And um, people do start to notice, like just like anyone you care about, these plants that are out there that you learn to care about. Um, when something changes, it's like, hey, wait a minute, like this isn't its usual patterns, like what's going on? And so it, it, it's an opportunity to, for people to always ask questions and always be curious and always be learning more about what's going on around them. Totally. I mean, that just the why you may not have the answer. In fact, scientifically speaking, from most plant perspectives, uh, even well-known species, we don't have answers for most questions you could possibly ask. But just being able to get to the point where you're asking why is is miles ahead of most others that aren't paying any attention. And you never know what could come from that investigation. It could be a whole new career path. It could be a whole new set of friends you're making at the local library or laboratory where you're saying you're just bugging them every day, like in a good way. Hey, what's going on here? What's happening? Or, you know, so I think of this blog I read all the time, Bug Tracks by Charlie Eisman, who has been on the podcast in the past and, and just walking around neighborhoods, I mean, lawns, even lawns that aren't hyper cared for, you see something using a plant, maybe it's munching on something or, or visiting a flower and you record that insect on top of the observations you're making. And suddenly you're like, we didn't know that insect used that plant. And so the power of observation leads to many, many new discoveries. And some of them, again, the blank spots are far larger on the data set than the known data points are. Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. Like, it's amazing. We can't always say like, yes, we do know the reason why that there's no flowers or we know why, you know, this plant leafed out exactly when it did. We don't always have those answers. But finding those patterns is oftentimes the first step, right? And so when you have just 
thousands of people collecting data all across the country and you start seeing these patterns that give scientists something to go on at least to try to find like what could be a potential correlation or why is this um, animal suddenly appearing here where it didn't before or why is it not appearing anymore? Um, especially when you have people keeping records of the animals, like I, I mentioned, um, you're keeping track of the same plant through time, but the way people track animals, it's a little bit different because you're not necessarily seeing the exact same animal every time you visit your site. So the animals, um, you're still recording the phenology of the animals, and maybe it is, right? You could have birds that are in a nest box that you're recording their phenology for. Um, but in general, though, if you're recording, yep, I keep seeing these birds here, and now for a couple of years, I haven't been seeing them or I haven't been seeing as many. Once again, you're starting to form those patterns of where those birds are appearing, when they're appearing, and if they're disappearing from areas as well. Yeah, because who knows? You know, again, scientists don't have their eyes everywhere, nor can they. And oftentimes it's it's concerned public that comes up and says, hey, I've noticed this could be something, could be not. That really sets us on a stage for trying to understand something better. But you bring up a good point about like where you're at and what you're observing. And I'm curious because I know like sometimes iNaturalist, for instance, is more concerned or at least has a bigger focus on things occurring in the wild. But, you know, in a city, the closest wild organism is probably pretty far away in a lot of cases or, you know, a place you don't want to go. Is there room in the National Phenology Network and Nature's Notebook for cultivated specimens, for instance? I'm thinking of plants like street trees. If you're just observing street trees, do you make a distinction or is there like a, a part of the form where you're like, oh, no, this is planted and just keep note that it wasn't here naturally per se? That's actually a really good point because that data is available for you to submit. So when you make your, like if I'm a backyard observer who's observing at my home and yeah, it's just some of those planted plants around the city, um, you can actually enter your details about your site. So like how far are you from a road? Are you in an urban landscape or a rural landscape? Or are you like, you know, way out away from people? And it, it, in, even if your plants um, are regularly watered or not, hmm. right? And that's actually, that is really important because scientists do look at that. They look at the phenology, if the phenology is different in urban settings versus out in like wild settings. Um, so that is information that you can keep and it is still important information for researchers to know because is there a difference between what's going on with the plants and animals who are closer to people than those who are further from people. That's great. I mean, Jesus, as a scientist, confounding variables are sometimes the biggest nightmare of any analysis because you can't control for all of them, but you at least want to know about them. And unfortunately, a lot of times those things kind of go to the wayside. But yeah, I mean, I know that whatever's going on in sort of the native gardens in my neighborhood, I can wait about a week or two before I start to actually see that out in nature. And knowing that difference exists... Uh, it, it, that is really important in and of itself. So it's really cool to hear that that's also considered in these data sets. Yes, absolutely. And and I and I think that's, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because it is a concern some people have. They're like, ah, oh, nobody cares about this, you know, planted tree on my street. But um, yeah, it, for one, some researchers are looking for that information specifically, but that's your tree that's near you that you're seeing every day, right? And so even if it's something that's important to you and if it's something that you want to learn more, it still matters. 
Um, but yes, if in the broader context, you're also looking for what can scientists use? Yep, absolutely. We can look at what's going on um, in those urban landscapes. Sure. I mean, the human environment is expanding year after year after year. And so many more of the organisms we share this planet with are going to be interfacing with us in bigger and bigger ways. And even just understanding how street trees behave and are their phenologies different? Are there some things to be concerned with? That to me is also a very interesting question. I mean, it doesn't always have to be this idyllic sense of nature for it to be meaningful. I mean, again, it's it could be just how do these plants behave on a porch versus in the ground somewhere out in the countryside? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, keep in mind too that it, you know, I keep trying to think, you know, we're on a plants podcast, but those animals, right? <laughs> yes. That need the plants, that live in the plants. So all those birds that are migrating through are they, you know, they need somewhere to build their nests, right? And so looking at if they're looking at environmental cues and, and phenological cues of what's going on around them, they are looking at what the plants are doing in those urban landscapes, right? And so that's important to see um, what's happening to the animals that are moving through. Um, so the phenology of the plants affects the phenology of the animals and asterisks also the fungus and, you know, the amoebas and all the other little creatures that, and tardigrades that we can't even, you know, fathom or we can't even record, but um, it matters on that much bigger scale as well. Right. So here's a scenario where you're helping people connect to their local environment in some form or another, but they're also contributing to seemingly endless amounts of investigations, questions, and all that stuff. You know, since you've been working in this realm, how has your perspective on everything changed? I mean, is this something, I guess, what would be sort of like a bigger perspective on this since you started here at the National Phenology Network? Has anything surprised you or excited you? What what has changed since you began this journey? The biggest, the biggest perspective shift for me um, so I just started um, a new season. Every spring and fall, we do our local phenology leader certification course. And this is for um, people who want to start developing local phenology programs, but maybe they just don't know exactly how to get started or how to make a science question, right? They know phenology is important. It's important to their organization. Um, but just a little bit of like, how do I get started with Nature's Notebook? How do I engage and train volunteers? How do I... Um, collect the data because we do have rigorous sets of uh, protocols for people to follow and definitions for what is a flower and what is a fruit. Um, and so getting to learn about all these projects that are so important to them, like every project is like someone's baby, you know, <laughs> and they want it to like survive and thrive and grow and learn. And, um, and so like helping them get the organization needed to get their program going. And then we also put out like a survey for our local phenology programs of like, you know, how did how did your program go? How can we help you? How can we support you? And so then I get to hear uh, from these leaders still like, um, you know, after a year or, you know, hopefully several years of like, these are the things we've learned. These are the patterns that we're seeing. This is how many volunteers we were able to engage and what we learned from them. And so being able to see people get started and so excited to learn about the seasonal changes happening in their area and then being able to actually record the data and then look at their graphs and seeing it happen um, is really, really cool to see. Um, and so it's nice to kind of get that that view that's just outside because I'm here in Tucson, Arizona, right? And our plants are, you know, relatively kind of weird compared to most other <laughs> <laughs> phenological plants when you think of that. 
Um, so I've learned so much about so many plants that I have never even seen in person, hmm. just from the people that I interact with and them telling me about what's going on with their plants in their area. So that's been really, really cool. That's incredible. And yeah, hopefully a little bit of that plantiness is rubbed off on you. You're observing things in different ways. Uh, <laughs> I have some plants that I'm very, very fond of now. And I, I do, um, I do have a lot of fun looking very closely at them and like, oh, they're little tiny flower buds, like the little tiny baby flower buds. They're really cool when you see them for the first time. So I definitely have garnered a much greater appreciation for the complexities. Um, and, you know, plants, you know, I, okay, like I was one of those, like plants don't really do anything. I know better now. Plants do a lot of things and it's so cool <laughs> to see it and experience it. So I've really enjoyed that. Wonderful. I mean, that's a journey in and of itself. And yeah, it's, it's ecology, it's biology, it's all connected and all of it matters. Plants arguably matter a little bit more, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, again, it, as long as you're observing and connecting to the natural world, something good is going to come of that. And, and at the very least, you're contributing to a bigger picture idea. And it doesn't matter which little chunk or camp you want to hang out in, but just be out there observing and, and better things can be done from that because a more informed populace can make better decisions and, and make more noise in the right direction, hopefully. Absolutely. Yeah. The more, the more people you have the chance to observe. Um, and then when you learn about, when you observe these plants, you learn how neat they are and just how different and um, expressive they can be. Um, it helps you learn and care about them. And then when we all care just a little bit, even if it starts out with just one little plant, um, it can help us start to care a little bit more about the bigger picture and our just ecosystem, global like ecosystem as a whole, um, yeah. which is just a wonderful thing. Yeah, especially when you start to realize just how fine-tuned some of it is, you know, it's it's gives you some important perspective to maybe motivate. But with motivation in mind, for my audience that are jazzed, they want to get involved, they want to start observing and contribute data sets, kudos to those who are already doing it. Um, is this something where you have to download a form or is there an app? Like, How do people start getting involved in the process of data collection and submission to Nature's Notebook? Yes, absolutely. If any of your viewers would like to get started, um, they can go to naturesnotebook.org or download our Nature's Notebook app. Um, you'd be prompted to create a site and the, your site is just wherever the location of your plants are. And then you can add whatever plants and animals you want to observe. Some people have a lot of gumption and they'll add a ton of plants. I always encourage people, you can start slow with just a few um, and you can always add more plants that you want to observe to your site later. Because even if you have a site with 10 trees, it might be good to start observing one tree at a time and then you can add the rest of the individuals as you get kind of accustomed to it. Um, you can also join a local phenology program. So we have lists of active local phenology programs. So you can find one in your area um, and you can often go to their websites and learn how to volunteer with them. And they often have, you know, their local phenology leader or volunteer engagement coordinator, and they can help train you on the plants that they are observing at their sites. Um, and so, yeah, you can do it as an individual and you can also join some of these bigger organizations. That is excellent. Samantha, thank you so much for telling us about this. Thank you for talking about your journey. And, and thanks for all of the work y'all are doing over there. It is so important to have these long-term data sets because we can't 
go back and make up for the past. We can just make sure that in the future we're collecting as much data as possible because you really never know how this stuff is going to be used, whether that's to inspire a new crop of students or a scientist looking to answer some heavy hitting questions. It all matters. It's all important. And without the National Phenology Network, it'd be a lot harder. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Great. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and, and keep up the amazing work. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You too. Cheers. All right. Fantastic stuff. Once again, that's the National Phenology Network and Nature's Notebook. You can do it through a web browser or you can do it through a smartphone app. And the great thing about the smartphone app is you don't have to be connected to the internet to collect the data. You can collect it out in the field wherever you are, no matter what your service is, and then come back to Wi-Fi and upload the data that way. I thank Samantha for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us, and I seriously hope you will get involved with this project. You can find all of the relevant links for what we talked about today over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Just check the show notes. There are links to literally every aspect of what I talk about each and every week in those show notes, so make sure to check that out. While you're over there, consider supporting the show. You can do that by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers, or you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. Speaking of which, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Catherine, who signed up at the producer credit level. So they are doing the maximum they can each and every month to ensure this show has a future. Thank you, Catherine. And of course, thank you to all of my patrons. I couldn't be doing it without them. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.